Well, earlier this evening, we began with that wonderful, beloved hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The words were written by Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. He was born in 1866 in a log cabin in Kentucky. He lacked a high school education and often suffered in his health. Uh, He was ordained to be a pastor at, at one point in his life, but his poor health forced him to resign from the ministry and to pursue something that was a little less taxing on him. He did recover somewhat of his health, and he became an insurance agent later on. But he went on to write many poems testifying to his love for the Lord. One of those is that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. He was impacted by the testimony of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, which is the literary center of that book of mourning, where all the chapters and verses before chapter 3, verse 22, leads up and ascends in this lament to this literary center, and then everything else after verse 23 then descends from it. Clearly, as Jeremiah wrote this book, he wanted the readers to focus on these two verses, and this is what those verses say. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's a wonderful declaration stated in the midst of tremendous suffering and sorrow And Chisholm himself was one to feel some of that, impacted as he was by his health and and by his circumstances. He penned the words, to great is thy faithfulness. And he said a little later on uh, about his own life and about his, his reflection upon these verses out of Lamentations, he, he said this, my income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in earlier years, which has followed me until now, although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God, and that He has given me many wonderful displays of His providing care, for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness." Certainly, as we draw our series on the perfections of God to a close, it is most apropos to end with this one on God's faithfulness. I think if there is one attribute that we must leave to the end, to leave on our memories as we move on from this study, it is the faithfulness of God. Indeed, even though we may suffer in this life and suffer dearly, Those who know the Lord recognize that even through that suffering, he proves himself day after day as a faithful covenant-keeping God. And certainly faithfulness is not something that is normal in this world. In fact, if we think of the world around us and human relationships and every sector, every sphere of human experience, we're very much acquainted with the opposite 
of this perfection. We know too well the words unfaithfulness, infidelity, disloyalty, and the like. In fact, as A.W. Pink said, he said, unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins in these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is no longer his bond. In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand, the sacred bonds of wedlock being broken with as little regard as the discarding of an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands who have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth make no scruple to attack and deny it. Nor can reader or writer claim complete immunity from this fearful sin. In how many ways have we been unfaithful to Christ and to the light and privileges which God has entrusted to us? And against that dark backdrop of our experience of others toward us and of our own actions toward others, God's faithfulness shines like the most brilliant of diamonds. And so we turn to that this evening and we begin, as always, with the definition of this perfection. What does it mean uh, when we say God is a faithful God, when he says of himself that he is a faithful God? Well, we can define this perfection with a very simple set of words. The faithfulness of God refers to his reliability. If we boil it down to just that one word, reliability, that is who God is. God is always motivated by the same purposes. He always acts according to his unchanging nature. And he always fulfills the promises that he makes. That describes the faithfulness of God. He is unwavering in his commitment to be consistent with who he has revealed himself to be in his word, and he is unwavering in his commitment to uphold his word, to do as he promised, to fulfill every decree, to fulfill every pledge, to honor every covenant that he has made. He is a faithful God. And as such, he is the source and standard by which any faithfulness in our experience can be measured. And as we've already noted, there is no kind of relationship where we see in the horizontal level in our own human experience anything that compares with the steadfast, unwavering faithfulness of Yahweh. This this primary the primary emphasis of this perfection, when we look at the biblical text, is particularly found in, in contexts dealing with promises and covenants. So we can define the term promise this way. It is a declaration or assurance that one will do something or that a particular thing will happen. A covenant is really a formal agreement, a formal contract, or a promise. And what we see in the scriptures 
is that whenever God's faithfulness is emphasized, we see in the same context, typically, this emphasis on promises and on covenants. God's perfection is particularly displayed in his commitment to honor his word, to keep his promises, to keep his covenants, and he never allows his word to fail. He never breaks his promises. And so what he has promised to you in his word, he will never let that fail. The promises that you read there in this word, he will never let fall to the ground. They will never prove vain. He has staked his entire character upon it. One theologian describes it this way, because he is ethically reliable, God is covenantally faithful. That is, There is a precise equivalency between what he says he will do and what he actually does. In the words of A.A. Hodge, God's faithfulness is his reliability, his determination to fulfill all that he has promised. His faithfulness is grounded in his absolute truth. God is perfectly sincere in all his undertakings and dependable in discharging all of his engagements. Now, when we read definitions like that and consider even just a single word of reliability, we see automatically that this perfection of God is inseparably related to his other perfections that we have studied. But let me draw attention to just even three and, and to show how God's faithfulness is a part of all his other perfections. For example, God's faithfulness is contingent upon his truthfulness. What do we mean by that? Well, God only reveals what is true about himself. And he only makes promises that are true. He, he never can mislead. He never can lie. He never can do a bait and switch. What he promises, the very words and intent of that promise is true. And therefore, he is faithful because he upholds it. His whole character is designed for the pursuit of truth. And that's what makes him faithful. We read, for example, in Numbers 23 verse 19... God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Now notice what comes next. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? Those are rhetorical questions. And the answer to those questions is, of course not. What he speaks, he will do. What he says, that he will make good on. He will not allow his word to fail. His faithfulness is contingent upon his truthfulness. God's faithfulness is also possible because of his omnipotence. We define his omnipotence as his infinite power. Whatever God does, whatever he accomplishes, he does so without 
diminishing any of his strength. He is not like a battery that needs to be recharged. He can do the most difficult thing, and it takes not one iota of his power away from him. He is infinitely powerful. And as such, because God has no limit to his power, there is not one promise that he has made that proves to be difficult for him to fulfill. Millard Erickson puts it this way, he could never commit himself to do something of which he would eventually prove incapable. And that is so important for us to understand when it comes to God's faithfulness. Because so often as we consider the promises of God, the doubt is there, sowed either by the enemy of our soul or by our own flesh, that maybe, just maybe, God cannot make this happen. That maybe it is impossible for God. And we question God's faithfulness in that, in that we question his power, his ability to make good on his promise. Well, God's faithfulness is also inseparable from his immutability. We've studied God's immutability, and that means that from eternity past to eternity future, there is no change in God because he is perfect. There is nothing that he needs to improve. And if there was anything ever that he would relinquish from himself, it would mean he was not perfect to begin with. And that is why in the same hymn that we sang earlier this evening, Thomas Chisholm writes that important phrase connecting it to the faithfulness of God. He says, there is no shadow of turning with thee. God's immutability makes him faithful. A.W. Tozer brings this out well in several statements as he describes God's faithfulness. He says this, quote, God, being who he is, cannot cease to be what he is. And being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. He is at once faithful and immutable. So all his words and acts must be and must remain faithful. He goes on to say this, God's immutability presupposes his faithfulness. If he is unchanging, it follows that he could not be unfaithful. Upon God's faithfulness rests our whole hope of future blessedness. Only as he is faithful will his covenant stand and his promises be honored. Drawing that all together, we can then conclude with Spurgeon who said this, God writes with a pen that never blots, speaks with a tongue that never slips, acts with a hand that never fails. That describes the faithfulness, the reliability, the loyalty of God. Now just for a moment, it does help us to consider what God's faithfulness does not mean. Well, we can say this, that God is unwaveringly consistent in his motivations and in his nature and in his promises. It does not mean that God cannot change the way that he interacts with his creation. 
Scripture testifies to the fact that there are indeed in the history of redemption different dispensations when God relates to his creation in different ways and reveals himself throughout those dispensations with increasing detail. Now, we must note that the way of salvation has always been the same. You can see this very clearly in in, in the, the, the text of Genesis 15, verse 6, where the very first patriarch, Abraham, believed God, Moses writes, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In that text, we see that, that what God approves and, and, and what God uses is simple faith, faith in God's promise. And God imputes to that one his righteousness. We see that same idea then in the, the great exposition of God's righteousness in Romans. Romans chapter 4, for example, where that same principle is, is laid out for the Roman church. In other words, the way of salvation, whether that be in the very first book of the scriptures or in this great Everest of writings, this great Everest of letters, the letter to the Romans, salvation has always been by faith. It has always been in faith or belief in the promise of God. However, that said, it does not mean that then in every dispensation, God must if he's faithful, relate to his creation in the same way. No, we see that there is a difference. There is a difference between how Adam and God interacted and how God related to Adam before the fall and after the fall. And there's a difference in in that patriarchal era in how God interacted with the patriarchs, and then in the era of the Mosaic law, and then in the church age, and then in the future tribulation, and then in the millennial kingdom, and then in the eternal state. But in all of those different dispensations, in all of those different eras, we see that God is faithful to what he reveals to those who are in that era. Now, from where do we get this testimony? How do we develop and articulate this understanding of faithfulness? Let's look now at the biblical testimony to the faithfulness of God. And we can see it in, in several categories. If we take all of that, that testimony that we read on the pages of Scripture, we can boil it down really to five categories or five ways in which the biblical writers testify to God's faithfulness. First of all, We see that in the scriptures, God's faithfulness is extolled for its immeasurable greatness. We see, particularly in the Psalms, but elsewhere as well, that when the biblical writers consider God's character, and they begin to look at how reliable and dependable he is, they break out in praise and essentially say, his faithfulness cannot be measured. There's no way to measure God's faithfulness in terms of quantity or quality or in terms of duration. It is infinite. Consider, for example, Psalm 36, verse 5. The psalmist says, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness 
reaches to the skies. Psalm 105, 100 verse 5 says this, For the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. The psalmist in Psalm 119, in verses 89 to 91, writes this, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances, for all things are your servants. Notice in that expression of praise that the psalmist very closely connects God's faithfulness to his word, that these things are inseparable, that whatever God has said, it is established, it is settled in heaven. In other words, it is settled for all eternity. There is no way that God will ever break his promises. In Psalm 146, verses 5 and 6, we read this. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. What a wonderful statement. God is one who keeps faith forever. And that's not faith in the same way that we understand faith in the sense of needing it for salvation. Rather, this expression that God keeps faith forever is a reference to his loyalty, to his reliability. He keeps it forever. Lamentations 3 verses 22 to 23. We've looked at this already, but it deserves repetition. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Indeed, there is no way that we can in any way measure God's faithfulness because it cannot be put in a box. There is no measuring stick, no weight, uh, no scale that can possibly contain all that there is in God's faithfulness. It is indeed infinite. But we also see in the scriptures that God's faithfulness is evident in the various titles and descriptions that are applied or ascribed to him, various metaphors and and, and and descriptions that speak of him in special ways as being faithful. For example, in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. In fact, that title, The Rock, is one of the favorite ones that we find, particularly in the Old Testament, that refer to God as as being immovable and unwavering. That he is that one who is always constant, always reliable. That he never wears down or breaks down. That he never fails. That he never comes up short. He is The Rock. Psalm 18, verses 2 to 3. The Lord is my rock 
and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Although the word faithfulness does, does not appear here, the whole concept of faithfulness is, is throughout this statement as, as the psalmist calls the Lord over and over again his rock. He is a rock because he is dependable. Isaiah 26 verse 4, Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. We'll come back to this as we wrap up this evening. But the reality of it is, is that what saves us, the stronghold that we have, is not the power of our faith, but it is the faithfulness of the God in whom we believe. And Isaiah sees that and says, because God is faithful, he is worthy of all trust. And therefore, We must trust him. It is the only logical thing for us to do. In 1 Peter 4 verse 19, Peter calls the Lord a faithful creator. Notice what he says. He says this, Therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. As you know, that letter that Peter writes to the, to the Christians scattered across modern-day Turkey, he writes this letter about suffering. The believers in that time had started to, to face various persecutions. And Peter writes to them to encourage them and to give them a balm for their soul. And not to say that there is nothing to, 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 to suffer in this life. No, to the contrary, he does communicate that that is what that that is what awaits the true believer. But as he communicates that, he says, look to a faithful God. Entrust your souls to, to a faithful God because he will only do what is ultimately right for your life, even through the suffering. And then in Revelation 19 verse 11, a wonderful title is used to describe the coming king, the Lord Jesus John writes this, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That is the name of our Savior. That is the name of the one who died on the cross in order to pay the penalty for our sin and guilt so that we might have his righteousness, his name is faithful and true. And how precious it is to come to him in prayer and call him our faithful and true Lord. In fact, when we look at all the names of God and we see his most personal name, the name Yahweh, we see in that name even a reference to his faithfulness. When he says to Moses, when Moses asks, who is it who sends me? And he says, I am Yahweh. I am. In that statement is 
the faithfulness of God. He is, a not, he is not a God who will become or a God who was. He is simply the I am. And that statement reassures us that he is the eternally faithful God. One writer puts it this way. Faithfulness is the idea of the very name Yahweh, the one who can be counted upon to be present. Thirdly, we see in the scriptures another category of evidences, and that's this, that God's faithfulness is established by his nature as a promise keeper. He is the ultimate promise keeper. We see that referenced over and over again. For example, Deuteronomy 4, verse 31. Notice again in these texts how closely God's faithfulness is connected with the idea of promises and covenants. Deuteronomy 4, 31. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. When God makes a covenant, when God makes a promise, he will not fail it. A little later on in Deuteronomy, we read this in chapter 7, in verses 7, 8, and 9, when the Lord explains why he's chosen the nation of Israel to, to, to enter a covenant, to enter into covenant with them and to make these promises to them as a nation, he says this, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore... That the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations, and those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 65, the psalmist says this about his own personal experience, and what precious words we find here. You have dealt well With your servant, O Lord, according to your word. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 22, we read this. But as God is faithful, our word, and Paul is speaking here of his word as an apostolic delegate, one sent by the Lord Jesus himself. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Again, in that context, emphasizing the promises of the gospel, that when those promises of the gospel are held out and you reach and you grab on to those promises, 
And you say, this is exactly what I need for the salvation of my soul. That nothing else will satisfy my deepest longing. Nothing else will deal with my deepest problems. But this promise of the gospel, that when that promise is beheld, that God will make good. That that promise that he says to you, that if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. That in that promise, there is no yes and no. There is no fine print. It is always yes and amen. That is the God whom we worship. In Hebrews 10 verse 23, we see this same idea as well where the writer says this to the believers. He said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Why should we hold fast? Why should we not draw back? Why should we not waver? Here's the answer. For he who promised is faithful. He will not take it back. So why should we doubt? Why should, why should we wonder? He who promised is faithful. Mark Jones puts it this way. God's faithfulness toward us springs from his faithfulness to himself. When he speaks a promise to us, his character is on the line. To break a promise to us would be to deny himself. There's a fourth category of Evidence in the scripture that testifies to God's faithfulness. And it is this. God's faithfulness is exhibited, is put on display, is is, is put forward in glory in his plan of salvation. So many evidences come from this from the scriptures and in how God relates to and applies this wonderful plan of salvation. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, 7-9, the apostle Paul says to the Corinthians that that we are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the return of, of Christ. And why? Paul goes on to say this, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this, God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The issue is this, Paul says to the Corinthians, that we are waiting for this final salvation and and what ensures it, what confirms it to us is not our ability. What ensures that we will arrive at the final destination is not our perseverance, is not our energy and what we put into it ultimately, what ensures that we will experience final salvation is God's faithfulness. Philippians 1 verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians these precious words. He says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is the faithfulness of God evidenced in salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24 A wonderful benediction to that letter. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, now, Thessalonians, 
May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's what we're all hoping for. That's what we're all waiting for. We're waiting for this life of pain and failure to be over. This, this life of, uh, of, of depravity and fallenness. This life on a cursed earth. We're waiting for it to be done with. We're waiting for that moment when God will sanctify us completely. And now notice what he says then in verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. What Paul says there is that our God, a faithful God, is not only the one who effectually calls you to himself and says, I have loved you, and I will bring you to myself. I'll bring you to believe in me and my promises. Not only is God faithful to do that, but he is faithful then to ensure that he will bring that same individual and each and every one of them to bring them to the final end. Faithful is he who calls and he will bring it to pass. We can stake our life on it. Everyone whom God has saved whom he has regenerated and justified and adopted, he will bring them to final sanctification, final glory. He is faithful. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 to 18 In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The writer of Hebrews is saying this, Listen, God has staked his very character on the promise he has made to you, the promise which you have beheld. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful truth that is. Of course, there are those who gladly sin and then glibly confess those sins, thinking to take advantage of the goodness and grace of God. But this verse isn't aimed at them. This verse is aimed at those who who do sin and and then recognize it and are sorrowful for what they have done and, and see how it is such an affront to a holy and righteous and perfect God and then are given this wonderful promise that you know what, for God to forgive you, for God to forgive that sin that you've committed, and to do so after this sin and that sin and, and this sin, and, and, and to hear that confession from day one of the Christian life to the very day you're on your deathbed, that God remains not just loving and kind, but he remains 
faithful to forgive you. That because of what God has accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is faithful to forgive your sin. And that's no license, of course not. But at the same time, sometimes we have this idea that by coming to God and asking him for forgiveness, that somehow his extension of forgiveness to us for that sin somehow depletes his character or demeans his character when that is not the case. That God demonstrates, he puts on display his faithfulness when he hears that prayer of confession and extends that forgiveness to us. There is a fifth category of scriptural testimony to God's faithfulness, and it is this, that the biblical writers will put up God's faithfulness and contrast it with man and his infidelity. For example, in that wonderful prayer of Daniel, that prayer of confession, as Daniel confesses for the people of Israel who were in exile, Daniel says this, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Notice the great difference. And this is something that should always be in our minds. There is a great distinction between God's character and ours. And even on the best of our days, even in the best of our efforts, we still fall so short of his faithfulness. And so on the one hand, we are quick to extol how great and awesome God is as a covenant and promise-keeping God. And on the other hand, We are so unlike that. We are the ones who commit iniquity, who break our word day after day. Indeed, he is not like us. Psalm 78, verses 36 to 39, the psalmist writes this, They deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast toward him nor were they faithful in his covenant, speaking of the people of Israel. But notice the contrast here that sets the faithfulness of God against the black backdrop of the people of Israel. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. Here again, the great contrast between the infidelity of man and the faithfulness of God to his promises. And then we find that wonderful statement in 2 Timothy 2.13, contrasting us with God, that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, what does this all require from us? The faithfulness of God. Well, first of all, as we reflect and meditate upon 
this wonderful perfection of God, it should lead us first and foremost to worship. We must extol God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness must regularly, often, frequently, consistently be in our minds as we meditate upon Him and as we express our love and adoration for Him. Why do we love Him? Why are we here on a Wednesday night? Why do we live for the glory of God? Why do we mortify sins in our flesh? Why do we sacrifice? Why do we not live like the world lives? Why do we do all these things? Well, we do so because we love a faithful God. Psalm 91, 92 verses 1 and 2 says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. These two words are so similar, loving kindness and faithfulness. And the way the psalmist puts it is this, the moment you wake up in the morning, you open your eyes, you come to consciousness, and the first thoughts that should be in our minds are these, God is a God of loving kindnesses, and loving kindnesses await me today. And then at the end of the day, as we put our heads on the pillow, and as we reflect upon all that we've experienced that day, like the psalmist, our thoughts should be, you're a faithful God. Everything that I have experienced today, though I don't understand all the intricacies and the profound wisdom that that you display in my life. I don't understand some of the suffering and the hardships, but I know this. You are a faithful God. Psalm 100 verses 4 to 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. The psalmist compels us to this kind of lifestyle that is constantly dwelling upon the faithfulness of God. Isaiah 25 verse 1, O Lord, Isaiah writes, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. If you'd read in Joshua chapter 4, the people of Israel were to erect in the middle of the Jordan what were called stones of remembrance. And they were given instructions at that point to, to, to erect these stones there. Why? So that future generations would ask What are these stones about? And those stones would provide those object lessons for fathers to teach their children and for grandfathers, their grandchildren, generation to generation to teach from these stones of remembrance that God is a faithful God, that he delivered them from Egypt, that he brought them 40 years through the wilderness providing for them food, protecting, giving them water, and then bringing them into the promised land. They are to be stones of remembrance. And listen, if maybe you don't need these kinds of stones, but if thankfulness for God's faithfulness is not really much upon your, your, your thoughts 
then perhaps you need to find these object lessons, these things throughout your life, whether it's on a bathroom mirror or in your car somewhere that will serve as a stone of reminder that God has delivered you, that he's forgiven your sins, and that those stones will remind you of his faithfulness, that it will never fail. Philip Keller, in his wonderful little book on Psalm 23, writes this. He says, I know of nothing which so stimulates my faith in my heavenly Father as to look back and and reflect on his faithfulness to me in every crisis and every chilling circumstance of life. Over and over, he has proved his care and concern for my welfare. Again and again, I have been conscious of the good shepherd's guidance through dark valleys and deep days. Dark days and deep valleys. Listen, men fail us. We fail others. But God remains faithful. And that should move us to praise. And what we should do regularly is think through our life and see all those times when in those dark days and deep valleys, those moments where we wondered. We all know of those. Those times when we asked, is God faithful? Those moments when we wondered whether he would come through. And yet we know days later or months later, sometimes even years or decades later, we look back and we see now that absolutely he was faithful. In that most difficult of times, we see now as we look back with that 2020 vision that he was there with us all the day, that he did not abandon us, and he had his wise purpose at work, and he was doing what was exactly right for us, and we see it now, then... That knowledge, that remembrance can help us in the moment when we face a new dark day, a new deep valley, and we again are prone to wonder, is God here? Yes, he is, because I remember, I look back, I see, he is faithful. He is faithful. Extol him for that faithfulness. Incorporate into your times of prayer and praise careful meditation, a recollection of your past, going through and remembering all those times. Cultivate that discipline and bring those memories back to the forefront and see that he has never failed you. He is a faithful God. Secondly, remembering God's faithfulness and worshiping him for it, we should also be led then to a deeper trust in his promises. We must trust God's promises. That's what the faithfulness of God compels us to do. We see this in Isaiah 50 verse 10. Isaiah says, Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let him trust Let him rely. That is the lesson of God's faithfulness. Hebrews 10 verse 23, as we've already read, let us hold fast the confession 
of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. We must trust his promises. We read that also in 1 Peter 4.19, that in the midst of the suffering, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator who does only what is right, and including keeping his promises. Because God is faithful, trusting his word, even against enormous obstacles, even when the world tells us that, that that's just idiocy, Knowing God's word and trusting his promises are the only logical options that we have because he is faithful. There's nothing else for us to trust. It's the only right thing to do and to worry about his promises, to doubt whether they will come to pass is to undermine or question directly his faithfulness. A.W. Pink puts it this way. (coughs) He says this, there are seasons in the lives of all when it is not easy, not even for Christians to believe that God is faithful. Our faith is sorely tried, our eyes bedimmed with tears, and we can no longer trace the outworkings of his love. Our ears are distracted with the noises of the world, harassed by the atheistic whisperings of Satan, and we can no longer hear the sweet sweet accents of his still, small voice. Cherished plans have been thwarted. Friends on whom we relied have failed us. A professing brother or sister in Christ has betrayed us. We are staggered. We sought to be faithful to God, and now a dark cloud hides him from us. We find it difficult, yea, impossible, for carnal reason to harmonize his frowning providence with his gracious promises. But when you are tempted to doubt the faithfulness of God, cry out, Get thee thence, get thee hence, Satan. Though you cannot now harmonize God's mysterious dealings, with the avowals of his love, wait on him for more light. In his own good time, he will make it plain to you. As I said before, it is not the strength of our faith, but the consistency of his faithfulness that saves us. Thirdly, finally, imitate God's reliability Extol his faithfulness, trust in his promises, and and imitate this reliability. Understand this, faithfulness is a communicable attribute. God's image bearers were made to reflect this. You and I were intended from the very beginning to serve as, as a kind of mirror that would reflect his own faithfulness. We were created to be that. Now, of course, we know that sin has corrupted man's capacity and appreciation for faithfulness. For example, we could read Psalm 12, verse 6, where the psalmist cries out, Help, O Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from the sons of men. Or Proverbs 20, verse 6, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? That's the world in which we live. 
But know this, that regeneration and sanctification restore this capacity and this desire for faithfulness. So we read that with the Spirit's work in our life as he produces evidence of his transformation in us, the fruit of his presence, we read that the fruit of that presence is love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. We are to reflect this. And fundamental in reflecting God's faithfulness is to cultivate this faithfulness to our own word. We as Christians ought to be known in this world as a people of their word. We, after all, are those who believe in God as a covenant-keeping God, as one who honors his promise. And we are so grateful for that because it means we have hope. It means we have confidence and assurance. But that must also translate into our own lives, that we become men who keep their word. That when we say yes, we mean yes. And when we say no, we mean no. It's not yes and no. It's not no and yes. But we're known as a people of our word. You can see this, how it is emphasized both in the Old and New Testaments. In texts like Numbers 30 verse 2 or Matthew 5 verses 33 to to 36. That our yes has to be yes and our no, no. God's faithfulness to us must translate into our faithfulness to others as we are transformed increasingly into the likeness of Jesus Christ whose own title is faithful and true that our lives should be always ever more faithful and true on that horizontal level to our wives Think of your vows that one day you stood before a a pastor, before a crowd, but most importantly before the Lord and you said to your bride in health and in sickness, for better, for worse, in riches and in poverty, I am yours. You are mine. Honor that vow in all its implications. That is what is to define a Christian marriage and make it completely unlike any other marriage in this world. That we honor our word to your families, to your children. Words that you have spoken to your kids. You will honor those words to your own hurt. And you will not break your promises to them, to your employers, to the contracts that you sign, to the verbal agreements that you make, that you will honor those commitments. To your friends, when you say you're going to show up and help them move at nine o'clock, that you show up and help them move at nine o'clock. To your neighbors, when you say you're going to help them or you'll do something for them, that you do it. And even to strangers, that you're not one of partiality, that your word is always the same, no matter who it is that you speak it. Be a man of your word. Yes must be yes and no must be no. And ultimately know this, 
That faithfulness is not proven in times of ease. It's not proven in making easy commitments. Faithfulness is always a quality that shines brightest in hardship, in difficulty, and suffering. Faithfulness is best seen in that in that unconditional commitment that despite the circumstances and all the pressures to the contrary, you will keep your word. And as Proverbs says in Proverbs 21, 21, he who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. Well, as we close this, I want to make a special appeal to you that if you have not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you are not at peace with this perfect God, now is the time. I do not want you to leave tonight if you do not know the gospel. If you you have not confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and seen him to be the solution that you need to your soul's greatest problems, now is the time. Today is the day. After hearing all of this on the faithfulness of God tonight and all of these series, these studies on the perfections of God, there is only one logical conclusion. He is worthy of your faith. He is worthy of your trust. You can believe his promise. And when he says that everyone who believes in his son Jesus Christ will be saved, he means it and you can know it with certainty. So tonight, as you ponder that, and as we close with prayer, I beg you to consider that. And if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, do so tonight, while it is still called today, and enter into peace with this perfect God, and He will prove Himself faithful to you. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word and how it has opened your character up to us so that we might see all these beautiful riches, your greatness, your glory, your majesty manifest in so many different ways in your aseity, in your love, in your grace and mercy, in your omnipotence, in your omniscience, in your holiness and righteousness and justice, in your wrath and in your faithfulness. We pray, Father, that this revelation of yourself would seize us in new ways, that we would be forever impacted by these truths And that indeed, as we see that you are the perfect God, we would never find any satisfaction in anything else but you. 
And Father, may this vision of who you are as presented in your word so seize us as to transform our lives and to make us so different from what we used to be and so different from the world. And may it transform us in such a way that we would be attractive to this world that is lost and dying and perishing and that we would be to it the aroma of life. Make us those men, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.